Hello, hi. So today we have a special guest, Sandy Weaver, um, who is the author of the book, Happy Vet, uh, Happy Pet. And she's also the director of Center for Workplace Happiness. She is a mindset expert. So she's gonna explain to us in a few moments also what that exactly means and what she does. And uh, welcome to Arash's world. So it's all yours. Hi. hi Thank Sandy. you, Arash. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I'm looking forward to playing with you. Absolutely. Um, so could you please just introduce yourself? I mean, uh, what is something that's important to you? What, how would you define yourself in just a few minutes? What would you say about yourself? What sticks oh. out here? Well, clearly I'm about 15 years old. So <laughs> I am, um, I am, if I was living in the land of Vincent Van Gogh, who you recently wrote about, I would probably be called a Renaissance man. Um, because I'm, I'm just one of those people who likes to be into everything. I've, I'm interested in everything. I'm interested in the world. The longer I live, the more the world interests me. And the more the possibilities of the human psyche and mind and ability and energy intrigues me. And I like to learn about it. Oh, I love it. I consider myself a Renaissance man too. It's just like, they, I can't find one thing that fully satisfies me. So I just branch out and, oh, this is interesting. And this is interesting. And uh, the tra the, the uh, jack of all trades, I like to call myself an arash of all trades, which is- Arash of all trades, I like that. <laughs> yeah. um, we have, and that's something that's very important that we already have in common. And we can see the uh, sense of humor, which is uh, extremely important. And I think that's really part of happiness. I mean, you cannot have happiness without a sense of humor. Do you agree with that? You might be able to, but I'm not really sure how. Um, I, I, I don't want to say in absolute that you can be a door person and still be happy in your own self because that's not a brain I live in, but it might be a brain somebody else could live in. I don't know how it would be possible. Yeah, and so one of the uh, litmus tests I have with people is if they don't have a sense of humor, I generally do not trust them. So okay. that is uh, that has worked out, especially <laughs> and, uh, at work and around me and in my in my personal life. That but um, let's talk about uh, animals. So that seems to be some, one of your uh, passions among many. But um, talk about your experience of animals. How do you feel about them? What um, what do, do they give us? What can we give to them? And just specifically about uh, pets, animals, or anything else you like. Well, it's funny that you said that you have a litmus test with people and I have a litmus test with people. If they don't know how to pet a dog, I probably am not going to trust them either. <laughs> you know, if you pet the dog like this. Now, if you're a six-year-old child, yes, you don't know how to pet a dog. But if you if you come up to a dog and you just tap, tap them or, you know, barely touch them and it's there's no caress to it. I, I wonder how warm that heart is. I really wonder how warm the heart is. So I've, I've lived with animals my whole life. My, um, my dad was career military, so we always had a small dog. And I always wanted a Siberian Husky. And my dad's phrase whenever I would say, I want a Siberian Husky was, when you have a place of your own, you can have whatever kind of dog you want. So a little more than 40, yes, that would be four zero years ago, I got a place of my own and I got my first Siberian Husky and haven't been without one since. Dogs are wonderfully resilient. And that's one of the things that they teach us. But I think the most important thing they teach us when we're open to, to learning it and learning the gift that they have is they are perfectly in the now creatures, perfectly in the now. And they're so good at living in the present. And when we look at that and we understand what they have going for them that we don't have going for us when we let this little time traveler that lives between our ears, you know, go back in time, go forward in time, instead of staying right here where we are, we miss so much when we're not letting our brain behave like a dog's brain. I think that's wonderful to see how much uh, they can really teach us about ourselves. I think that is, uh, yeah. again, and yeah. just being able to observe, observe animals. Uh, we, uh, we have recently gotten a pet, uh, a hamster, and uh, last year, and um, my, my son wanted one. And it was something I, I always thought of hamsters. Okay, well, it could be fun, but they're over there. But now we're so like, uh, it's made such a difference to our family. It's, and he is part of our family. 
Right. And who would have thought that we could have a, such a strong emotional connection with a hamster? And it's just, for me, it was mind boggling. Right after when we got him, we, uh, the, the world just went crazy and we were in lockdown and everything. But throughout, it was really that connection that we have, we have with, our, with our pet that made it uh, much easier of not being able to go out, of uh, not being able to have the life we used to have. And I was wondering how does that affect maybe other people as well in terms of COVID and their relationship with their pets or also encouraging people who feel lonely to actually look for a pet to find a certain connection uh, with uh, these animals. The shelters emptied out. When COVID hit last year, a phenomenon happened that nobody could have predicted. And that was that people suddenly found themselves with a lot more time on their hands. They found themselves able to have a pet in their life when previously they thought they couldn't because they had to work hours, you know, their work hours were too long. So shelters emptied. People went and adopted right and left there. I was talking to someone earlier today. I have a friend who's looking for a Shiba Inu puppy and the man that I put her in touch with said his waiting list is two and a half years, years long. Now he is a very good breeder and very well respected uh, Shiba Inu puppies. And people know they go to him because they really love his Shiba temperaments. And, but so his wait, cause he doesn't breed a whole lot. His waiting list is two and a half years long. That's not uncommon. People are wanting to add furry creatures to their life or finny creatures to their life or feathered creatures to their lives or, or, or tiny fuzzy little cute things that make funny noises and roll around the house in a hamster ball. Uh, yeah, it, I think pets help us, A, feel a little bit more connected to the entire community that is planet Earth and also feel a little bit deeper sense of purpose where we might be just, you know, going along, going da da da. Yeah, I'm, I'm for me. I'm, I'm for me. I'm, I've got the car I want. I've got the house I want. I've got, the, I wear the clothes I want. I eat the food I want. And then all of a sudden, you get this little dependent creature, and they give you so much, and all they ask for in return is everything. And we're happy to give it. We're happy to give it. And I think that that has been an eye opener for a lot of people. There, I've talked to a lot of people over the last year who never ever imagined that they could, like you, kind of said the same thing, never imagined that you could have as deep a connection to a non-verbal creature that you share your life with. <laughs> it's amazing they have their own personality and how that develops. And so our hamster was really scared and like suspicious of us and like afraid of everything. And now he's just like the calmest creature ever. And he just like, we can see he's, he communicates with us and he has his own personality. And, and that is something that once you, you have an animal in your possession as a pet, you realize they are unique like we are. So there is so much that we do have in common, uh, right. humans and animals. So what was, what's the biggest change in your son that you've noticed since letting him have a pet? He is, um, he's always been caring, but it's just wonderful to see him take care of, of his pet and always be with him. And um, our, our hamster ran away for um, half a day or pretty much all day once, and uh, we were terrified. And so uh, one of the most moving moments for me was when, when he came back and my, uh, my son just like was in tears, so happy. And we just realized like uh, what a loss it would be once, uh, once he's gone from us. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and that's something that's it's concerning because uh, unfortunately their lives are, are sped up and they have less time than, than we do. But then the other idea is just, you know, we have to take advantage of the moment, every moment that we have. And in, 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 in pet years, in hamster years, every moment counts so much more. And so it's not to be wasted, it's to be enjoyed with, with good food or with a great company and uh, activities that we like to do. And so yeah. I think that is also a lesson, but also again, his uh, emotional connection here with, he's, he's an only child, my son. So it's basically feels like a brother to him, which mm -hmm. is pretty amazing how that is even possible. Right, and how old is your son? 12. Oh, okay, cool. So one of the things that I tell people who are old enough to understand this, who are going through a loss of a pet is to think about the, the energy of the pet and the love that you had as the pet is making your heart bigger and stronger. So every single pet that you have, even when they're gone, your heart, your heart is bigger and stronger. 
mm-hmm. because you loved that pet. Mm-hmm. And that works with people too. When yes, you have yes. Yes, and it's uh, it's uh, a few years that we'll have uh, with uh, with our hamster, but it will be cherished in every moment of it, and uh, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so the um, uh, what about vets who are here responsible to uh, take care of our pets when they're not not feeling well, when they have issues, and um, I just. Uh, uh, Thank goodness, my, my wife is a nurse, so we we do uh, check with her if there's anything to to guide us. Perfect. But uh, I I can uh, I can imagine that uh, uh, vets who feel um, at times um, overwhelmed with stress. And there's a lot of focus on me- the medical profession, but I think uh, not enough credit is given to vets who are dealing with our our loved ones, which are our pets. This is the other our other loved ones, basically. Right. Right. And uh, in many cases, there's not much they can do, like in the medical profession, too. So I was surprised, shocked uh, to hear. And uh, it was last year I read the book that talked about there is, uh, um, um, they tend to be often suicidal uh, vets. And because of all the stress and the emotional turmoil that they have to go through. Um, could you comment a bit uh, on that? Sure. It, it actually starts with who veterinarians are. And most veterinarians knew they wanted to be a veterinarian since they were your son's age. Most of them started thinking about or deciding to become a veterinarian between the ages of eight and 13. And so that's really early to know something. It feels like a calling to them. It does not feel like a profession or a job. It feels like a calling. They are called to care for animals. This is what they've wanted to do since they were a child. And when you go sit with the guidance counselor in school, or you do just a little bit of research on Google, you find out that getting into veterinary school is very difficult. And Part of the reason is because there are far fewer veterinary schools than there are medical schools. So it's easier to get into medical school and become a doctor than it is to get into vet school and become a veterinarian. So that's the first problem. And so to to counteract that problem, what they have to do is get really laser focused. They have to become a straight A student. If they weren't a straight A student already in order to get into vet school, they are going to have to be a straight A student for the rest of their elementary school, middle school, high school life in order to get into vet school. So they're going to have to be really focused. They're going to have to spend their after school hours and their summer vacations either taking AP classes or taking uh, volunteering at shelters or working at an animal hospital in order to be able to put that on their, I get, I need to get into a vet school resume. That, that getting there, they become very focused, very driven. That's who they are, real type A, which means they're very hard on themselves. They expect a lot of themselves. They expect themselves to be perfect. Everybody else cannot, they let everybody else slide. Everybody else gets to be a human being. They expect themselves to be perfect. They expect to know the answers to every question. They don't ask for help easily and they don't ask for advice easily. And so here they are driven to get into college, then driven to get into vet school from college. Vet school is very expensive. Most veterinarians graduate and become veterinarians with somewhere between 150 to $500,000 in debt. It's a lot of money to become a veterinarian. And when they graduate as a first year veterinarian, they make about half of a first year human medical doctor. They're still a medical doctor. They're just a, a, an animal medical doctor. Same level of doctor, same, same level of skills, just a different, peop, a different body that they practice on. So human doctors on average make about $180,000 their first year out of vet school veterinary doctors about 93,000. So you see it takes a lot longer for them to retire the debt. And a lot of times the debt is higher because it doesn't cost as much to go to med school because there's more competition for medical schools to get, you know, it's easier to get into them is what I'm trying to say. And so you've got this perfect storm of a perfectionist who finds it very hard to ask for help who is driven to care for animals, who is deeply in financial stress when they come out of college. They're not making enough money to retire that debt easily. And they're typically late 20s, early 30s. So they're in their early family life. So they've 
They either, they have to try to find a work-life balance over here. They have to try to retire all this debt over here. They have to try to start a practice over here or become an associate vet in someone else's practice. And they find themselves dealing with clients who treat them like it's a transaction instead of like it's a professional relationship. We treat our doctors like it's a professional relationship most of the time. We respect them, but most of the time with veterinarians, we don't. We treat it like it's a transaction. I'm going to go to the vet. You charge $45 for an office visit and you charge $35 for an office visit. I'm going to the $35 vet. Never mind if that's a, the right vet or not. You know, if it's a good fit for you, if it's the person that you can really talk to or the person who is very intuitive about caring for your animal. Because remember, human patients can tell you where it hurts. Animal exactly. patients cannot. It's, it's, it's really, they start, I mean, they start life as a veterinarian about 18 steps behind the start line and it just gets worse from there. Yeah, I mean, you, you touched upon all of these things that I wanted to ask and comment on. So one of the things is that lack of communication. I think that uh, also causes more stress because when you have a human patient, they can communicate with you. It makes it easier for you to figure out what the problem could be, as well as you can give them comfort, hope, and you can uh, talk to them. There's that level of communication, which would not exist uh, with, uh, with animals, obviously, but also in terms of our society, I mean, how we perceive basically different grades of doctors, you're a medical doctor, you're a dentist, you're a psychologist, you're a vet, and, and that kind of perception of like, yeah, there are different levels, and I take you less seriously than the other guy because of what you're doing, and not respecting people, not putting them on this on the same level, I think that is uh, that is a serious issue and that we have in our society of that grading of seeing people more useful perhaps than other people whereas you know everybody is doing something useful i hope i'm doing something useful with my blog so that's these are these are things that uh, are often um, not considered um yeah so um in terms of that was uh, i had another point to make but I, I i just lost my train of thought it'll come back it will come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, that dealing, yes, the dealing with others, uh, that's why they, they um, see them as hired help, perhaps, you know, yeah. people who go to the vets and um, don't see them as the, the person who could really help their loved one. And I think that's how we need to perceive it. I'm wondering if their relationship, then, if you have a very close relationship with your pet, whether that would also show more respect, you show more respect to the vets, because they are basically helping the person that you really care about. And I think that should make a difference. What it should. Yes, it should. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't. In a lot of cases, the, the client walks in and they've, they've Googled the symptoms and they know what it should be and they know what it should cost. And they instead of going in and saying, you're the doctor, here's what I've noticed. Can you please see if what, you know, figure out what the problem is? Instead of that, they walk in and they say, well, I think my dog has Addison's disease. And so we need to treat it for Addison's disease. And my dog has Addison's and that's what it is. And it shouldn't cost any more than $125 for the test. And then the medication, I know she's going to have to be on it for the rest of her life, but it shouldn't cost any more than $30 a month. Yeah. So your, your veterinarian who has spent their entire life trying to be an A plus student, you just gave them a D minus by walking in and telling them, I value you so little that all I want you to do is dispense the medication that I tell you. And it's interesting because we don't see our own medical doctors that way. And we don't say, oh, how much are you charging? So I'll go to the, the cheaper doctors. So it's just amazing how that, but I wonder if like maybe the government could do more stuff or in terms of the insurances, if they could be, I don't know if there is actually, I'm not aware of that, some sort of pet insurance that would be included. Yes. And it really is, if you're going to have a pet, having pet insurance makes so much sense. Because it used to be that veterinary medicine was much more rudimentary than, than human medicine. Now, there was a time when human medicine was ghastly rudimentary, and it progressed. But veterinary medicine didn't keep step because the diagnostics weren't there for animals the way they are for people. There's just not the financial investment in it. Well, as we become more invested in our pets we're more willing to pay for diagnostics, which is how 
hospital chains like Blue Pearl happen. They're, I mean, Blue Pearl veterinary hospitals are amazing. There they're are centers of excellence for doctors that are specialized in all different kinds of veterinary medicine. If you need a veterinary oncologist, they've got one. You need a veterinary um, uh, ophthalmologist, they've got one. So that that specialty and specializing is happening in veterinary medicine now faster than it ever has before. And the diagnostics are there, the treatments are there, everything's coming, but it's coming at a cost. And so here's your veterinarian who's gone to school, has invested in themselves and invested in their learning so that they could take care of animals. You bring in a case, they know the diagnosis, they know the great treatment, they know exactly what to do and you can't afford it. And so they have to do less knowing that it's not going to do the right thing for your pet. Can you imagine how that veterinarian feels? Because they can't treat every animal that walks in the door for free. I mean, we already talked about the $150,000 to $500,000 in just student loan debt. But running an animal hospital is exceptionally expensive. There are a lot of things that can be automated, but the human touch cannot be. So veterinary hospitals tend to be really people heavy. And people are the most expensive part of any business. But in a veterinary hospital, they are essential. You can't automate having a technician come in and triage your wriggly puppy or come in and try to hold down your uh, arriving reptile who does not want to have a blood sample drawn from its tail, but has to have a blood sample drawn. So it, long story short, if you've got a pet and you just ask your veterinarian what insurance they recommend. That's what I did with my, I have a, a COVID puppy. Um, I didn't really mean to get a COVID puppy, but that's just how the timing worked out. And she, um, you know, when I got her, I hadn't had a puppy for a long time. And I asked my veterinarian, you know, what are the, what, what's the best insurance? And she said, well, you know, the two that we like the best are this one and this one. And so you should just check them out and see if either one of them works for you. And one of them, I just did the math and said, heck, one bad visit to the emergency vet will cost more than this insurance will cost for her entire projected life lifespan. Done. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> that made perfect sense to me. So yeah, I pay $50 a month for my puppy's vet insurance. I think there needs to be more awareness of that because I wasn't aware of myself. I, I mean, we, we just have the, the hamster. Um, right. there, there are a number of things that uh, have come, my train has come back and it, it is loaded with lots of things. So I'll, I'll try to unload it as much as I can. I uh, one, of, one of the things I hope that will change uh, thanks to COVID is that apartments allow people to have dogs, small dogs and puppies and, and pets like that, which is at our place, it's not possible. And my, my son really loves, would love to have a dog but I say well we need to move to a house we cannot afford a house so we'll have to wait until one day hopefully but right. I'm, I'm hoping that there is legislation to to change that and maybe COVID can can bring that about uh, the other thing when you mentioned blood samples taken uh, of animals and that's the again level of communication because we cannot tell them hey this is for your own good we gotta find we're not here to hurt you but then I also think of lots of humans who, who react uh, worse than the animals, who seem more terrified and rebellious when it comes to blood samples being taken. So right. it goes both ways in that yeah. sense. Yeah. And my, my main thought was also about perfectionism. And as an ex-perfectionist, I must say that this is not a state that is healthy at all. And uh, unfortunately, a society seems to think that is a good idea and they seem to praise it but it is actually not only bad for your health and for our stress levels, but it's actually just, just generally not good, just not good for people to even, it blocks you to advance to, to high levels when you could help, could get help, you need help to um, go up and to learn more and you don't learn by just holding, by making mistakes. We learn from your mistakes, but uh, by being afraid of them and uh, taking your own route without asking for help, that is actually worse because you're missing out on a lot of uh, learning opportunities, which right. has been my experience too. You are exactly right about that. And, and every every single point you just made, and you're right, that, that train car was loaded. Every single point you just made is exactly right. And one of the phrases that I, I crafted for myself to get myself out of perfectionism because I was a type A perfectionist, couldn't, couldn't make a mistake, couldn't admit it when I did. There was always a reason that it happened and it, and it was, you know, people don't like perfectionists because they, 
they they look at you and they go, well, you're a you're not perfect, and b why do you think you are? So c you know you don't come across as genuine. So my my phrase for myself as I was getting myself out of those perfectionist tendencies was, when I'm perfect, I will run for God. In the meantime, I'm human. And part of my job is to make mistakes and learn from them. And it's the and learn from them part that's the strong part. Exactly. Yes. And so it's it's that when when people accept uh, responsibility, when people make mistakes, I have so much sympathy for them because I say, you know what? Yes. And you're accepting it. You're a human being. But then we get others who make mistakes, but then they blame others. And and we have politicians. We have like, people in office. We have. And it's just I think, no, this is not helping. If you were more authentic, more honest and say, you know what? I am not a perfect politician, president, whatever you have. I make mistakes and I apologize. And just like, and when we do that, we think that reaction will be, oh, you're weak and you don't know what you're doing. But in, in often in most cases, most people will actually respond favorably to that. Yes. And uh, I think for those who are uh, listening here and watching and thinking who are perfectionists, try it out. It's been um, such a pleasing experience for me to accept my mistakes and say, you know, I was wrong. And it actually feels better than saying, no, no, I wasn't wrong. I was right all along. And when we just compare those two emotions, it's like the authentic feeling just is such a release. And of course, uh, you take it seriously and say, from now on, I will try to avoid it. But it's just that the fear of making a mistake is what often blocks us and then we don't sometimes we don't do anything we're just scared what if i do this interview but i make a fool of myself so i will not do the interview and and right. that that is that is a common fear and probably uh, last year i would have just succumbed to that before it's like no yeah we're not going to do it but no it's fine and if if i lose my train of thought in the middle of the interview that's okay <laughs> It'll come of back. humanity. It'll come back. No big deal. It'll come back eventually. It goes and loops. Yeah, it comes back. Yeah. When you when you make an excuse, mm -hmm. what you're telling the other person is that you have no power. So you're saying I have no power over the situation. So let's say I'm late for a meeting because I got stuck in traffic. And and I'm I'm 10 minutes late for a meeting because I was stuck in traffic. And I live in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Stuck in traffic is about our middle name, especially on days like today. It's uh, it's pretty bad out there. I'm really glad to be in here. So I'm late to a meeting because I was stuck in traffic. Instead of thanking the people in the room for their patience in waiting for you, you have disrespected them by walking in expecting that they waited for you and then blaming other things outside things over which you claim to not have control mm -hmm. for your lateness but what you've actually said to them is oh poor me i am so pathetic and so weak that i, I cannot work an automobile and a clock at the same time really do you want to look like that? That's what people hear when you make an excuse, yeah. as opposed to just saying, well, clearly I should have left the home 20 minutes before I did. Thank you all so much for waiting for me. What did I miss? Please. Done. Exactly. Yes. You know, there's no drama in it, but there's a lot of authentic humanity in it. And everybody in the room will understand that you have just respected them. And the coolest thing is you've heard yourself hold on to your own power. You owned your own life. You owned your own mistake. And you said, you know, okay, I'll leave 20 minutes earlier next time. Thanks mm -hmm. for waiting for me. And, and to know that that difference, like in the in the pledge I have at, at AA, where I say things that I can control and things I cannot control and know the difference between the two. I just watched a, an episode of The Simpsons where they say, oh, we can't do anything about it. But then it's like, well, you can take it both ways. Like, oh my God, we can't do anything about it. Or, well, we can't do anything about it. So yeah. what are you going to do? So it's it's the same sentence, but it's just how you approach it. It makes a huge difference. And uh, and in some cases, we do want to control others as well, which is those people are suffering most right now because there is a, a lot of things that are going on that we don't agree with, and that is not good. But we have to accept these are my limits. I can only do so much, and what's in my control outside of that control, that's not in my hands. And so it's like, well, I can't do anything about that. This is how it is. And COVID happened and this is how, what's happening. And there is just so much wrong with the world right now, but just, 
I can only focus on what I have around me, you know, my own actions. Yep. And here is the big secret that most people don't want to hear. The only thing you can control is in between your two ears. It is that big gray lump that sits inside your head. That's the only thing you can control. And instead, most people, instead of controlling their own brain, they let their brain control them because that's, we've let it do it all, all of our lives because we figure our brain is us. But I like to think of the brain more of the operating system and I can reprogram it if I want to. Neuroplasticity research has shown us time and time again, this thing that's inside our head, we can make it work for us, not against us. And an awful lot of the time because of the negativity bias that is inherent in the human race, it's how we've survived this long, the negativity bias that we have controls us. And that's why we crave drama. That's why we want to give our control. That's why we want to, you know, blame people and blame other circumstances. That's why we feel like we need to look perfect is because we've got this negativity bias that makes us feel like we have to look bigger than we are so that we can survive. Yeah. And seeing everything as threatening when it's not always the case, exactly. just to go back to the example of being late, let's say for a meeting and we think, oh my God, now I just blew it. I'm going to lose my job because I am late for one meeting in my life, right? And it's just over-dramatizing it and just uh, taking it like uh, uh, making it much more serious than it is. And then when we actually realize, you know what, that happens, it happens to the best of us. It's not out of outside of our control and maybe it is. So we learned our lessons from it and it won't happen again. That is so empowering. And uh, then you don't have to be on the defensive. You don't have to make excuses. You just exactly. accept it for what it is and then exactly. move on, like yep. you say. Yeah. Um, how is, what is the best way for dealing with stress? Because for me, I think that fear and stress and anxiety, this is the main cause of why we are reacting in such ways. Why are we on the defensive? Why we feel threatened? And so um, what can we do about that? What would you uh, recommend? Reframe, reframe, reframe. But before we reframe, my favorite tool for people who, and usually what happens when somebody is stressed is that they're letting their brain go down a path that does not serve them. And it's a, it's a common path. It actually ends up being a neural pathway. Uh, the more times we think a thought, the more we believe that thought. Whether it is empirically true or not, we believe it because we keep thinking it. So an example in my own life, um, when I was very young, I wanted ballet lessons. We were not a well-to-do family and it was not in the budget. And one night I heard my mom and dad talking and mom was trying to convince daddy that somehow she could find the money in the budget and I could have ballet lessons. And dad said, and he, I need to defend him before I say this because he would never have said this had he known I could hear. But he said to mom, she doesn't need ballet lessons, she's too clumsy. And those words pierced my heart. And because I didn't think of myself as clumsy, but here is a man that I love and admire and look up to who is saying I'm clumsy, so it must be true. He said those words, not to me, but about me one time. My ears heard them one time from his lips. But inside my head, because I could not have ballet lessons, I heard those words over and over and over. And every time I thought about wanting to have ballet lessons, I thought about daddy saying I was clumsy. And so I didn't go out for sports in school because clearly I was too clumsy for sports. And I didn't want to go to the school dances because clearly I was too clumsy to dance. And I didn't want to go out on dates with boys because I, what if they discovered I was clumsy? They wouldn't like me anymore. So it was that stupid cycle inside my head that started at a point in my life where I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what was going on inside my brain. And when I did finally figure it out, all right, this did not come from studying neuroplasticity. This came from reading a Cosmopolitan magazine. When I was about 18 or 19 years old, there was a, an article about how to get over, break up with the man of your dreams. And the concept of the mental stop sign was introduced. So I love this concept and it works beautifully. Anytime you find your brain going down a self-destructive path, on autopilot, 
because you're just allowing it to go there. There's a neural pathway and your brain is playing while you're not paying attention. Your brain is going, well, let's just go here. Or maybe your brain is saying, I'm stuck in my house and I can't get out and I don't know when I'm ever going to get out again. And I don't know whether I'm ever going to see the sun and how is the world going to be the same? And how are we ever going to be back to normal? And your brain is going down this very self-destructive path. A, there's nothing you can do about any of that. So B, mental stop sign. When you, when you, when you notice these thoughts, and this is the challenging part, all of this sounds so simple, but this is the challenging part, catching your brain doing it. It's important, just like training a pet, it is very important to be very consistent. Actually, I'm, I never was a mother, but it's probably the same with a child. The more consistent you are, the better your efforts are at raising a functioning adult. So you have to be really consistent in catching your brain, thinking things that don't serve you. So you, you catch it, you put up a mental stop sign, and you make yourself think about something else. Now, if you can't think about something else, sing a song because you cannot think self-destructive thoughts and sing a song at the same time. Doesn't matter which song it is. If you're in a place where people would hear you singing and you don't want, it, want them to do it, hear you singing, then sing it inside your head, but sing a song because that will interrupt a negative thought process. And the more often you do that, the easier it becomes to notice your brain doing that. But we've allowed our brains to run rampant for their entire lives. And it's about time we put some reins on them and make them work for us instead of against us. I think one of the one of the, the very beautiful things that I've also realized in, in in my life is that that words matter. So when you the things you say, the way you say things, and when it is uh, something that's encouraging, it makes such a huge difference. But the downside it is also when you make disparaging remarks, like uh, it happened, and it was. It was not intentional. It wasn't meant to hurt, but it's just perceived in that way, and it causes so much havoc and damage in a, in a person. And it's it's a, it's a case of trauma. And I think especially in our in our younger years, when uh, when we are children, uh, what our parents tell us, the way they communicate with us, it's so important. And so when when that happened, it would be important to uh, just say, make sure, okay, well, this is not what we mean. We don't mean to say this, or just to clarify things because. The, the child is in their own way of thinking and then all these things get get bigger and you 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 keep building on that and it again causes causes uh, havoc in that sense and for for I think uh, what is important here is really to get to those moments that uh, those uh, moments of childhood and for me I think that is really the formative years of making sure what is it that is driving me? Why am I a perfectionist? Who am I trying to please? And it's often not just ourselves. It might be something that we are remembering our parents or we wanna impress our, our dad or our mother. And for me, that realization, when, when you fully realize that, that I'm scared of my boss because it reminds me of my dad or my mother, or I'm having a difficult relationship with my spouse because they reflect what my parents used to say, I think that once you fully realize that and experience it and process it and feel it, it is such a liberating experience that the thoughts that were coming and bothering you will stop on their own accord. So for me, that's been one of the things. And the other thing I want to mention here with the words that matter, um, and some years ago, I, a friend made a comment and said, you know, if you don't believe in yourself, well, how do you expect others to believe in you? And it was, and it probably, it wasn't even like, he just, he just said it randomly. We're having coffee and it was just a comment. And somehow that seeped through my unconscious and that stuck there, even though I wasn't fully aware of it. It was just like running in my unconscious. And then uh, after that, I talked to a friend of mine who teaches psychology at my college. And I told him, look, I heard about if you have this name, it subconsciously affects you. If you're Mary, you compare yourself to the Virgin Mary and you have these high expectations of yourself. What do you think of that? And he said, yeah, that's true. And for me, the realization that there is a subconscious and this person who I respect and is knowledgeable actually agrees with it, just changed my outlook completely. And so it's that those words that I heard and they put me on a path over the past few years where I realized that a lot of my problems that I have, a lot of my tendencies of being a perfectionist, of being, say, insecure, of, of being afraid, of being threatened, 
is basically going back to years ago where I had these experiences and they're kind of stuck somewhere, large somewhere, and just unraveling it, uncovering it, opening it up. And then suddenly it's just, everything changes. It's just like a light bulb goes on and you can see the whole room. Yeah. And it's wonderful when you can see the whole room because you can forgive everybody, including yourself. One of the things that people do without thinking about it is they judge their parents by an exceptionally high yardstick Mm -hmm. and they find them wanting, you know, my, my dad did this to me. My mom did this to me. My parents should have been better. My parents should have, should have this, should have not said that, should have da, 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 da. Well, guess what? If you can go through life thinking that everybody, everybody is just doing the best they can do in the moment, which sometimes is not very good, but in the moment, people, everybody tries. They, they're doing the best they can do. Just assume that everybody is doing the best they can do in the moment and deal with it. You know, let them have their little breakdown. If they've got to have a breakdown, let them have their, their life as a bad parent because there are, there are bad parents and some people were raised by bad parents and some people were raised by great parents and some, most of us were raised by people who were in between, but they were just doing what they knew how to do and they were doing the best they could do in the moment. They were not intending to raise a neurotic child because no parent ever sets out to do that. So they didn't, they didn't do this to you. Mm-hmm. They just did the best they could do. And now as an adult, it's your turn to suck it up buttercup and grow up. Mm-hmm. So take on your own life, take on your own challenges. And the easiest way to do that is just forgive everybody, including yourself for whatever shortcomings that you perceive to say, look, I'm just doing the best I can do. Everybody else is just doing the best they can do. And, and we're all trying to do a little better every day. One of, oh, I agree with you. One of the, the things, uh, especially blaming is, is the worst kind of thing that you can do because when, when you are blaming others, you just, hurting yourself as well and i think that where where people have gone through a very serious trauma and uh when they learn to let go and forgive the other person because as as you said i think nobody really intends to do bad or to do harm or to be a jerk on the day just something that is a complex mixture of different things but one of the things i've learned through my own mindfulness uh, practice is that I have still, I still get angry. I still have those emotions. I still like call out people and so on, but it's done in a different mode. So where before, if I blame somebody, it's because I'm angry at them. I'm angry at myself. And, uh, but now it's like, okay, the feeling of anger is there and I experience it, but it's, it doesn't come with all these attachments. It's kind of, I am still allowed to feel it, but it is not, I'm not defending myself. I'm not trying to hurt the other person. It just, this is how it is. And the facts are there. I mean, we do have to say, okay, you know what? Honestly, you did this and this was wrong. Well, honestly, you guys are not good parents. You might perceive it to be so, but it's not the case. However, what do we do after that? And exactly what you say, we don't harbor, we don't just grudge, uh, we don't have these bad feelings and so on. We just explain it and let go. And what we did and what I did in my case is um, try to not make the same mistakes with our with my own child and to just learn from that. And if I hadn't gone through that, then I would not know what the mistakes are. So we can see it again in a different way of saying, you know, thank you for teaching me that lesson of what I'm not supposed to do. So now I can focus more on what I'm supposed to do. Exactly. Arash, you are, you are very wise. That's exactly right. And the, the wonderful thing about that, and I, I have firsthand example, example of that. My mother's mother was a narcissist and she was, she was not a good mother. I can't imagine being raised by her because she was not a good grandmother either. And yet my mom was 180 degrees the opposite. And I know that it was exactly what you were just saying. She had the example of what not to do to your child and made the conscious decision to go the other direction. And I love what you said about you still feel the anger. We're human. We have this 360 degree range of emotions and we're supposed to feel them. But what you said is really beautiful and I'm just, I'm gonna button it up into two words no drama. 
because it's the drama that we draw around our emotions that causes the clash. We are allowed to feel them and then we just let them go. We're, we feel them, we learn from them, we can let them go. And we do that by just reframing. You know, if we think that the other person, okay, let's just say I got rear-ended in traffic. And if I just go back there, rah, 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 you hit me on purpose. You were probably on your phone. You're a terrible human being. No, 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 no. Who am I hurting? I'm probably making them feel even worse because they already feel bad enough because they ran into the back end of my car. And I'm driving my own blood pressure up. I'm causing all this drama in my own life that doesn't have to be there. Yes, I can feel angry and frustrated because, oh my gosh, how much is this going to cost? And am I going to have to be in a rental car? And I really need my car this weekend. And, and I, I don't have time to put it in the shop. And I'm going to be late for my appointment now. All of that because we're human, but we don't have to put the drama around it. It's the drama that causes the conflict. Feel it, understand it breathe a couple breaths and, and, you know, don't, don't take a bad moment and milk it into an entire bad day. There's bad stuff that happens all the time. It's how we deal with it that defines our life. Mm -hmm. I, there's a, a, a story, an anecdote I heard about uh, Zen Buddhism that has always seemed fascinating to me. And I think now I finally fully understand it and uh, understand what he's trying to teach us. So there's these two monks that are uh, they're walking and there's this woman who, who comes by and this one monk just grabs her, helps her out over the water. There's a puddle and he, he carries her and cover, uh, puts her on the other side. And then the younger monk is like thinking, all this time it's like thinking, oh, he touched a woman. He grabbed her, he, he put her over the puddle and so on. So he's just like obsessed with that. And then he says to the older monk, like, um, we're not allowed to touch women. We're not allowed to do this. What you did was, was not correct. What do you say to that? And the old monk just laughs and says, look, I just carried her over the puddle moments ago. You've been carrying her all this way along for such a long time. Yep. <laughs> so I think that's worse. <laughs> okay. But I I was just going to say, this is where I channel a Disney movie. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, just, yeah. uh, yes, you made a mistake. Move on. Right. Just let it go. It, it's it's and that's that drama. I think that is really happening. And that's why we have so haters. We have so much hate there. People getting really riled up, upset about everything. And it might be for a good cause, but still anger we just have to be able to manage it. And one of the things I've learned too is not to take it personally. So when the other person is angry, I just see it as a reflection on them. Okay, you are suffering, you're angry. And when you say you call me stupid, it's basically that's how you see yourself. And I feel sorry for that. And I wanna show you compassion of being able to understand why are you angry? What's causing your anger? And it's not the guy in the traffic. It's not the person at work necessarily. It's something else that's causing it. And it will be with you wherever you go. Even right. if you go to a place where there's no traffic whatsoever, you'll find something else to get angry about. The coconut <laughs> landed on my head. Oh my exactly. gosh, I have to kill the coconut tree. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and so the, the problem is not others in many cases. The problem is oneself. And as you said here, one's perception of oneself, of not being authentic, of letting these things uh, pull us down, these way, the negative thinking. And yes, that exists with us. And it's, it's, again, also human nature, but we can also control it. We can be the captain of the ship, basically. Uh, the waters are going to be there. It's going to be stormy occasionally, but we can move the ship about. At least we have some control, not absolute control, obviously. Yeah. But we have we have a lot of control. And there, this was a Facebook meme that I saw. And I just thought, I'm taking that with me because there is so much wisdom in that. It is not the water around the ship that sinks the ship. It is the water that gets into the ship that sinks the ship. Think of yourself as the ship. What are you letting in? What are you letting bother you? What are you taking personally that is not personal? And uh a sentence that seems to resonate with a lot of people that I work with is what other people, and they laugh at it to start with. So you're allowed to laugh. It's okay. What other people think of me is none of my business. I agree with that. Agree and with most that. of the I time like it's not even about me. It's mm -hmm. about them. As you just said, it's, it's about who they are. It's about an experience that they've had. It's about their perception of me, which is still about them because it's still not about me. Their perception of me might have nothing to do with me. 
because they don't know my life. They don't know my experiences. They just know what they experienced this moment. So they're reacting to that. Okay. That's still about them. And, and even even if it is personal, it depends on me too whether I want to react to that or not. You know, right. when you make a personal comment, I can check and say, you know what? Yes, you're right. I'm always late. That is a fact. Or I can say, nah, and it doesn't bother me because it's not true. And it shouldn't bother me because I know it's not true. So it's it's that kind of again, there's no need to look for excuses to defend oneself and just like. Just take it in. Okay, I'm sorry you feel that way, and move on because I it does not affect me. And or I think. Or thank you for the feedback. Or thank, thank you, you for the feedback, feedback because you are right. Yeah. Yep. Or it does. Thank you for the nice thing about thank you for the feedback is it does not say they're right. Okay. You're not saying I agree with you. You are saying I acknowledge that I hear you, mm -hmm. and so they feel heard. They feel acknowledged. So thank you for your feedback. <laughs> and it's really the, the why behind it, too, that I'm always interested in everything about why. Why is this happening? And that's why I'm just fascinated by, by philosophy, too, because it's like asking that question. We, we don't get to a response. But just going back to, uh, to animals and our relationship with animals, too, I, I, I tend to be harsh on René Descartes, um, the uh, French philosopher who, with his dualism and mind and body, and I, I'm still tough on him. And I'm gonna be actually tougher on him and say a lot of these problems that we have with our relationship with animals is because of him. Because in, in many ways he said, um, well, animals are just machines. They don't have a soul. And I think that is like in the back of our minds and passed on through philosophy, through traditions, and that is simply not true. That's simply not true. I agree with you. I cannot look into the eyes of any animal. Now, I might have to... Insects accepted. <laughs> I don't like insects, but I, I'm sure they, weird. they but, have something. Yeah. The only difference between Sandy Weaver talking to you here with a living body and Sandy Weaver cadaver laying over there, the only difference between those two entities is the energy running through the living body. And so there's energy running through all of the animals' living bodies. There's energy living through even spiders' living bodies. And I don't wanna be anywhere near a spider's living body, but there's still energy running through it. And I think it's that energy that connects us and that is our life force. And I have to honor and respect the energy even in a spider. Yes, yes, I agree with you there. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's also like in, in Buddhism, they do, they talk about reincarnation and we do have the idea of like, yes, it could like, we could go through animals as well. This could be basically a person from our past life that is appearing as an animal. This, this could be us. And we are again, right now, not aware of it at right. this moment. But right. uh, I saw this one program that had talked about uh, um, this girl, a young girl seeing her dead dog on the uh, on her bed. Uh, appearing right and it's a spirit of the dog and so that was kind of interesting because i never had thought of a spirit of animals but it made sense to me but then the person who was asking her say and what did the dog say and the girl just looks at him and says dogs don't talk <laughs> and that applies to spirits as well so why would you expect that to be any different and um, I, I think we need to think more about that and maybe see that that connection that Yes, they are living beings, but they are actually, and I would think we say some of them have personality and so on, and it's applied to, let's say, certain animals. But what about our hamster? It definitely has personality. So oh, yeah. can we extend that, you know, and, and realize that that exists? I believe, I, I totally believe it does. I've Every single dog that I've had in my entire life, which is not a short life so far, has had a completely different personality, a completely different way of being, a completely different feeling to me. Their energy feels different. Um, I, they, if they're not souls in fur coats, I have no idea what a soul could be. <laughs> yes. Definitely. I, um, there's a program I watched about uh, the dog whisperer about uh, dealing with difficult dogs. Mm -hmm. And what, what I've always enjoyed about the program is that uh, this dog psychologist did not really work with the dogs themselves, but worked with the owners. And so a lot of the problems is actually not the dog in many cases. 
it is their, their, the owner's psychology, their own problems that they are uh, projecting as, as parents would on their, on their kids, uh, on their offspring. So I found that very fascinating. So it's like, yes, he's a dog psychologist, but he works with humans. <laughs> oh, and one of, the, one of the things that we as humans forget is that we're the ones with the big overdeveloped brain. And we expect our pet to be able to think like we can when it's our duty and our goal in understanding our pet and being a great pet steward is to learn to think like they do, understand who they are, understand what motivates, what motivates a hamster, what motivates a dog. When I'm training a dog, I I look for the dog's button and every dog has a button. And the button might be its favorite toy. The button might be cheese. The button might be tuna fudge. The button might be petting or praise or a belly rub, but every dog has a button. And if you find that dog's button, you know what will make that dog motivated to work with you and learn and play with you. So I can train dogs to do all kinds of different things because I know how to find their buttons. <laughs> would you agree? Would you agree with the statement that a lot of, especially dogs, I think, but probably other pets as well, that uh, a lot of dogs would reflect the, uh, their caregiver's personality and sometimes even looks, they physically look the same as well as their characteristics. Would you agree with that? that I think a lot of, yes. And I think in a lot of cases, it becomes more so because the human adapts to be more like their animal. Interesting. So the, the, I think two souls come together and they become more alike. Um, and, and as far as the physical characteristics that maybe they chose a pet that was going to look like them, or maybe they chose a hairdo that made them look more like their pet. Perhaps. Yeah. But then maybe a subconscious thing. It's like, oh, it looks like me. But uh, I find that very interesting too, in terms of personality and how that is also, and they absorb it. So when you have a pet in a, let's say dysfunctional family, then the pets get stressed as well. And right. that is something that we should consider too, of like, you know, I don't know how, but probably easy to adopt a pet. There is not, uh, again, compared to, to humans, to, to kids. But I think that's something that people should look at as well. And said, especially now that we have a choice and just make sure we give the pet to a family that really cares, that's gonna be um, healthy and uh, good, a good environment for the pet than, than somebody who would uh, abuse them in different ways. Is there such a protocol or I don't think there is, is there? Maybe. There are a lot of shelters and and breeders try really hard to fit the proper animal to the proper home. And if an animal is not appropriate for that home at that point in time, they won't adopt to it. Um, One of the things that is interesting to observe is that when somebody comes to you with an animal, and I've talked talk to several veterinary behaviorists about this. They, they come in with an animal that's showing certain behaviors. The behaviorist knows that's not the animal speaking. The animal is doing the behaviors, but the, the behaviors are pointing to a bigger problem in that family unit. Mm-hmm. And so before you can fix the animal, you have to fix the family. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't fix the family, the animal is gonna to continue to be stressed. And this is something that bothers me when we have uh, children who are rebellious, children who are bullies and so on, and we blame the kids. And in some cases that may be, but it's really the environment they're growing up on. And I think that, and, and then teachers do punish them, discipline them. But I would say, no, let's look at the parents, call in the parents, or again, instead of giving the kids medication, like talk to the parents first, give them medication, and it's going to trickle down and the child is going to be fine. In many cases, this I've seen to be true. Right? And yeah. yeah, I agree with you. Um, in a lot of cases, and again, I was never a parent. So this is, this is a non-parent giving parenting advice. So <laughs> take it for whatever it's worth. Uh, but in a lot of cases, Children who are acting out, children who are bullying are also like the dog that goes to the behaviorist. They're pointing to the dysfunction in the family. They're just simply showcasing it where the parents are trying to keep it under wraps. There is dysfunction there and the parents are trying to act like everything's normal and the kid is bursting out and saying, oh no, it's not. And it's really not the child's problem or the child's fault, and the, yet the child gets medicated for it because the parents don't want to own it. Yes, that is that is sad. 
And yes, that is very sad and a shame. That's not every case, but it is a lot of cases. And probably most cases, I would say. Uh, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to talk here. I think we had an we had an amazing. Not I think I know we had an amazing conversation. It was so enlightening, so interesting. And um, for me, I, I've always loved and appreciated animals, but I have not blogged about them much. So I uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to to do so here and uh, to talk about them. And thank you for sharing your your insight and and your knowledge and your sense of humor. Thank you for all of that. Thank you, Arash. This has been lots of fun. Thank you.